kind of weird to think about how it's been a month since the last time there's been a solo episode here on the show. Welcome back to My Seminary Life. I'm your host, Brandon Knight. This is the summer of Bonhoeffer. And yeah, somehow we managed to get through four weeks with guests. That's very unheard of here. That's quite normal in other podcasting spheres, but that's different for what we're doing here at My Seminary Life, primarily a solo show. But it's it's good to be back with, well, just me. Just just me this week. Sorry to disappoint. Actually, the next several weeks worth of episodes are going to be, well, just me. I know. It's a real bummer. But at least I have a really nice voice to listen to. People have told me that before. Not making that up. We're here to talk about today in the summer of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's view of World War I and how it affected the German people and also how the Treaty of Versailles affected the German people. And I know what you're thinking. Brandon, that sounds like quite the complicated topic that we're getting into today. And you would be correct. This is going to be quite the, uh, quite the heavy topic that we're going to dive into. And because there is so much to cover today, let's not beat around the bush. Let's just jump right in. So allow me to first, um, allow me to first set the stage. What, when is this happening? The year is 1930 or 1931. It could be both. This, what we're going to talk about today is a speech that Bonhoeffer delivered frequently while he was on tour here in America. For those of you who may have missed the memo, uh, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran German minister, literally from Germany, during World War II. That was his, um, the majority of his public life and ministry was during the 30s and 40s. And today what we're going to be talking about is a lecture, well, not really even a lecture, more like a speech that he delivered throughout his time here in the States. He was here in the United States, uh, like I said, during 1930, 1931, teaching at Union Seminary in New York. And while he was here in the States, much like many of us, possibly one of the most relatable things that we're going to be able to connect with Bonhoeffer over is that while he was here in the States, he had a really hard time finding a church to go to. Have you had that experience when you're just like church shopping for a very long time and you just want to settle in somewhere? He had a really hard time finding a church to settle in at because, well... Most churches that he kept running into were not gospel-oriented. It wasn't until he started attending a church in Harlem, a black church in Harlem, that he, it was a Baptist church, that he finally found a church home here in the States. And the reason why he settled in at this Baptist church in Harlem is that, in general, he found that the gospel was actually proclaimed in African-American churches. That is where he found the gospel to be truly proclaimed and lived out in the context of African-American churches. 
So that sets the stage. Bonhoeffer is going around to different churches, seminaries, whatever, uh, giving this address, essentially appealing to Americans for sympathy towards the Germans. His speech opens with an appeal to the group listening to him to have an open heart, to listen to him with a Christian heart ready to respond in love. He also uh, comes to them not just as a Christian, but as a German who is hurting for his hurting people. Now, I already need to pause and do a bit of self-reflection here. That's how this whole series is going to work as we do these solo bits, is that I'm going to pause randomly and give you some of my thoughts. So, one thing that stands out to me here is that Bonhoeffer does see himself as a Christian, but he also sees himself as a German. And I, I find that interesting in this time period where we are, and rightfully so, many of us are starting to deconstruct, repent, turn away from whatever word you want to use, from Christian nationalism. There's plenty of people digging in their heels into Christian nationalism. But there's a lot of us who are trying to peel back the ogre onion of Christian nationalism from our thinking from our theology. And I find that for some, the response to that is to completely turn away from the Americanness of ourselves, our American identity, our identity of being citizens of the United States. And what I find interesting here about Bonhoeffer is that, you know, in in a short while, he's going to start speaking out against the Nazis, against the Christian nationalism, essentially, of the Nazi party, of what they were trying to push as this Christian, this German Christianness, uh, Aryan Christianness. But at this point in time, Bonhoeffer, he sees his his identity as a follower of Jesus, but he still holds on to his identity of a German. Really, this whole speech that he's about ready to give as we start to walk through it is going to be him talking about what's going on in Germany as a response to World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. And it's his Germanness, his German identity, that gives him this burden for his people. What I'm trying to say here is that possibly for those of us who are looking to peel back the onion of Christian nationalism, maybe we should not go as far as to completely tear away our United States identity. That maybe there is a way for us to use our American identity as a way to appeal for prayer, appeal for um, sympathy from other Christians in other nations. What I'm trying to get at here is that it is possible from our example here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer already that in a response to Christian nationalism should not be a complete tearing away of our identity as Americans. Or there is also the possibility of, well, Bonhoeffer is 
just a human and he's wrong here. Maybe we are supposed to tear away our cultural identity completely and only be about the cross and discipleship and following Jesus. But it seems here that Bonhoeffer would argue that when you need to build a case for loving for your people, for taking care of your country, you do need to still appeal to your cultural identity. Okay, so now back to his actual, what he's actually trying to teach here. And like I said, he is turning to the First World War and how it has affected his people, particularly the effects of the uh, Treaty of Versailles on the German people, making them bear the entire weight of reparations for the war, crippling them, crippling their economy, and exposing issues in their public and private spheres. Wow, that's that's a lot. Bonhoeffer was a schoolboy during this time period, and it's hard for Germans to uh, bring up the bring up these wounds of that time period. So Bonhoeffer is talking about basically a lived experience here of living in between world, living in between the Treaty of Versailles and the start of World War II, and being a child during this time period where all of the weights, all of the guilt from the war fell on Germany and just how horrific that how horrifying that was for the German people and how now he's there to speak to us Americans to appeal for love to appeal for sympathy towards his people And this brings up maybe a couple interesting things to reflect on. First off, we have to to be in a place of being humbled, of being able to... Bonhoeffer has to be in a place of humility in order to come forward to talk about this. You know what I'm saying? Typically, in these types of situations to the victor goes the spoils, right? I think that's how that saying goes. That for Bonhoeffer to go to the group of people who won, quote, quote unquote, won World War One, to say, hey, could you have sympathy towards us, the losers who had to bear all of the weight of what happened in the war, for him to do that, to appeal to us, the Americans who won the war, I've known plenty of people in my life who would say, well, tough luck. We won the war. I have sat with people, with pastors, who have talked about going to other countries, Japan, for example, and complain about how when they were visiting Japan, there were no signs in English using the using the um, logic of who won the war, referring to World War II, who won the war. So apparently, in some people's thinkings, when you win the war, whichever one you want to talk about, other countries have to now yield to the victors. So can you imagine the, the humility it would have taken for Bonhoeffer to go before Americans and say, yes, you won, but we are hurting and we are pleading with you for help and then for the Americans at that time period to be humble enough to receive that message to do something about it like this is a hard 
this is a hard scenario to be in, you know? Bonhoeffer now begins describing the conditions of his childhood. There was no food other than turnips. Well, that really sucks. No coal or cloth to path, patch clothes into winter. And as a boy, he would wander, he would walk across a bridge that would take him to school. He had to go across a certain bridge to get to school. And basically every day on his walk to school, he would look down into the river underneath the bridge and find a bunch of people who had jumped off the bridge to kill themselves the night before. You know, it's never good to play the comparison game, you know, especially when it comes to things of like trauma, talking about, you know, issues that you've experienced growing up. But can you imagine? I, I've never, I've experienced my own forms of trauma from my childhood and teen years and even as an adult. I did not regularly walk across a bridge and see a bunch of people's bodies floating in the water on my way to school every morning. Can you just, just imagine the trauma, if that doesn't speak to the deep wounding that the German people received from the Treaty of Versailles of just the absolute hopelessness, the conditions sound pretty hopeless from Bonhoeffer's own testimony, but the just outright, just the outright hopelessness and children on their way to school, have to observe that hopelessness firsthand. Not that they're not seeing it in their own homes with, you know, having to eat turnips for all three meals. You know, I've, I've experienced my own hardships, but that really puts things into perspective of, like, just the damage, the wounding, as Bonhoeffer will continue to refer to here, that the German people took from this time period like that's insane and we you know i see i've seen a meme recently of someone praying to god saying i can't believe i must be your your strongest soldier lord that since you've given me this unbearable task and god's reply is it's literally an email. You are my weakest soldier. Just send the email already. Like, I feel like this really puts some things into perspective when we take the time, not just Bonhoeffer, but other people as well, to step back and to listen to other people's testimonies, other people's stories of what they have experienced to maybe realign in our own thinking, just truly how, I don't want to use the word blessed, just truly how privileged we are here in America. Fun fact, Bonhoeffer goes on, fun fact, the first congregation to Germany that helped the children and helped the communities were the Quakers, which I guess is logical because that's kind of their thing is to go do good to other people. The biggest weight of them all was the weight of guilt that the treaty put on the German people, even though uh, for many of their soldiers at some point during the war, they did get to a place where they were like, I'm fighting for my country, even though I may not agree with what my country is doing here. That was the unbearable weight. Given all of the hopeless conditions, the economic 
breakdown in Germany, the biggest weight, the biggest wound was the fact that all of the blame for World War One was put on Germany. And it's for the German people outside of all the economic hardships, that was the unbearable weight that drove so many of them to this hopeless state during Bonhoeffer's childhood. Now, since the war, he goes on to say, and he clarifies here, that he does not agree with everything that Germany has done politically since the treaty. He doesn't agree with everything. He's not trying to make Germany out to be completely without fault here, completely like, you know, completely without fault that, you know, they've done everything perfectly. Like he's not going to pretend that Germany has handled this situation perfectly since then, but he is willing to call the Treaty of Versailles unjust. He thinks the treaty gave, uh, put too much injustice towards the German people. Now, outside of Bonhoeffer, many German People, many German Christians do think at that time uh, the war served as a way to awaken the people to the fact that they were relying heavily on themselves instead of God. Now, dear listener, does that sound familiar at all to you? This idea that some giant phenomenon took place? Some giant hardship took place, and it revealed just how comfortable, just how much we were relying on ourselves rather than God. Oh, ding, ding, ding. You are correct, listener. I'm talking about 2020. I'm talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, the insurrection. That was 2021. Um, this All of the windfall from 2020, both politically, economically, socially, um, religiously, theologically, just all of the fallout from that time period. Does not what Bonhoeffer is describing here with the German Christians of the 19, uh, early 19, whatever that would be, 20s and 30s, seeing this as, seeing this hardship, the war and the treaty, both being very costly and weighty towards the people, but yet also a way to awaken and remind them of, or reveal to them rather, the, that they have been relying on themselves rather than God this whole time. Like, that has to be one of the biggest things that we need to take from three years ago as we continue to heal from this global event, from this nationwide event that tore so many of us apart emotionally, theologically, relationally, that as a country, we rely very heavily as Christians on our country, on our government, on ourselves rather than God. Now, you all know that I'm very pro-mask, very pro-vaccine when it comes to those things. So I'm not saying that those measures were wrong. What I am saying is that the unrest, the lack of peace that many Christians had during this time period, I know we weren't going to do it perfectly, and we still don't do it perfectly. 
But may we be able to look back at this time period to say, this was the turning point for Christianity in America. Or is it going to continue down the path that seems that we seem to be predominantly going down of, no, people are just going to start digging in their heels more and more into Christian nationalism, anti-social justice, anti-loving your neighbor. Which, what path are we going to take here, folks? Back to Bonhoeffer now. Many in the U.S. during his time here in the States asked the question, asked him this question, and it sounds so American to ask such a question, uh, whether he thought that another war could be possible that would be started by Germany. And again, it's 1930, 1931, Um, We haven't really gotten to the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party yet, at least as strong as the party will become. But Bonhoeffer said at this time during his stay here in America that no, war in general is the farthest thing from the mind of the German people. They don't want to think about any past, present, or future wars at this point in time. That's how deep the wounding is. They have been not just humbled, but humiliated seems to be the right word here. They have been hurt so deeply that no, there is no chance at this point in time, in Bonhoeffer's opinion, that there would be another war. Instead, rather than wanting to launch right back into another war, Bonhoeffer said most of the um, most of the German people were moved towards pacifism, just outright like no violence whatsoever. And this is going to be, we'll see if this continues to come up this year as we go through Bonhoeffer's writings. I imagine it has to be because this is a big part of Bonhoeffer's uh, philosophical worldview is pacifism becomes this big part of his theology and his philosophy of that is what Christians are supposed to adhere to is nonviolence. Pastor Will talked about on last week's uh, premiere episode for this series that just before his, uh, just before his arrest, no, excuse me, uh, just before him um, taking a seminary position in during the middle of the war, he was prepared to go to India to meet with Gandhi to learn more about pacifism. Like that's how significant this event, this thinking, this way of thinking will become to Bonhoeffer is that he's even seeking out people who are not a part of Christianity, who are deeply rooted in this philosophical framework to continue to flush out his understanding. His final thoughts here, we're starting to come to the conclusion of all things now. Um, Instead, uh, speaking as a Christian, All believers need to work to bring peace to all countries and to live in unity with each other as we all have one father. (sighs) Interesting. That almost sounds a little bit like church unity and also social justice, that as believers we need to be working towards bringing peace to all countries 
and to also live in unity with each other as best as we possibly can solely on the premise of the fact that we all believe in the same one father. Huh. Does that mean that Bonhoeffer is a a woke liberal by today's standards? Well, I guess I'll let you decide that for yourself. You know, we talked about this last week with Pastor Will. I talked about this with him about how uh, both sides. He, Bonhoeffer is kind of like C.S. Lewis in that everybody seems to kind of gravitate towards him for one reason or another. And with Bonhoeffer, not so much with Lewis, Lewis more so like theologically, but Bonhoeffer seems to like engage people on both sides politically. People like to read his certain his stuff towards certain perspectives. But call it what you want by today's standards, Bonhoeffer is saying we need to work towards peace in other countries and to live at peace in unity with each other. He then cites 1 Corinthians 13.4 for support, and I'm trying to make it more of a habit to actually read verses on the show now. You know, when you're doing homework, you sometimes forget to like prepare certain things. First uh, Corinthians thirteen four says, "Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud." And he uses this as the motivation for us, or specifically towards the people he's talking to here in the states in the thirties and thirty and thirty one. That um, love is our motivator, our love for God, and what should be our love for at least each other as believers in Christ to live in unity, and to pursue peace in other countries. His final plea, as we begin to wrap up Bonhoeffer's little teaching here, uh, his final plea is that they, the audience, those listening, take the hand of their German brothers and sisters and work seriously towards peace. And may I just say a little yes and amen that May we also work towards peace. How do we work towards peace in our own context? How can we, as believers scattered, this is a podcast, people all over the world are listening to this show right now. How can we work within our own context immediately to bring about peace? And then how can we work together to bring peace throughout the countries. How can we do that? Something to think about as you go about your week, how, and something for me to think about. One thing that's very difficult in podcasting, I find. Other people do this with ease, uh, but I have found it very difficult to build community. I know you all are out there. I see the numbers every week. People are listening. It's great, and I'm glad you're here. But to work together towards a thing, to be united, it's part of the reason why I have a hard time considering podcasting as like discipleship, because to me, and you can go back to the discipleship method series to learn more about my thinking on discipleship, but when it comes to discipleship, you need that consistent, you know, preferably for me, I would say in-person meeting or at least virtually seeing each other's face to build each other up. This is just like 
to me, the podcasting and any other future endeavor my seminary life has is like a, um, it's a building, um, it's a teaching tool. It's a tool to help build you. But I want to move it more towards this community aspect. And joining the Anazal Ministries podcast network is helpful in that because I am collaborating with people more regularly. Obviously, we talked about that way back at the beginning of this. But also to like, I don't know, collaborate, bounce ideas off of each other, pray for one another, things like that. The baseline stuff. All right. Well, that's it for this for the majority of our episode, the majority of our episode, that's it for the main part of our episode. I'm trying to give my seminary life a more well-roundedness to it. You know, like I said earlier, trying to bring back reading actual passages of scripture as part of the episode. You may have also remembered that at one point in time, we had the my life segment because we did the my, I said that my seminary is a uh, well covered here on the show, but not so much the my life part. So as you're listening to this episode here on Saturday morning, uh, do know that I'm going to be running around to not one, not two, but three graduation open houses. (laughs) For those of you outside of the country who may not have graduation open houses, I don't know if that's a universal thing or not. Probably not. It's a party for someone who just finished high school or whatever you call that in other places. Um, as they're getting ready. It's basically an excuse for that person to get a lot of money together before they go to college. That's what a grad party is, uh, open house. So that's what I'm doing today. Also, a new segment that I want to bring in that I don't know if these are going to be on every episode, but just to try and like give give the episodes a little bit more meat beyond the, the uh, meat and potatoes. We're getting some meat and potatoes, maybe a side salad and a dessert, depending on how hungry you are. Between w- what I'm reading here with Bonhoeffer and our previous series, Apologetics 101, I'm seeing more and more our need for being culturally relevant, okay? Okay. Because of the nature of the show, what I talk about may not always like line up verbatim with what's going on in the world. Maybe generally, like what we talked about today, a lot of like general like, okay, yeah, we're still dealing with some of these issues. But this is the brand new culturally relevant moment where I'm trying to talk about something that matters right now and how should we possibly engage with it. And I think the best place to start for this first one is talking briefly about two documentaries that have really grabbed a lot of our attention. First, The Secrets of Hillsong on Hulu and Shiny Happy People on Amazon Prime Video. Is that what they call it? I think it's Prime Video is what their streaming service part is called. So, Secrets of Hillsong, as you may know, uh, or can guess at least, deals with Hillsong Church, college, and music, and, and all the various forms of the music, while Shiny Happy People talk about the Duggars, known for the show 19 Kids and Counting, and IBLP, Bill Gothard's Institute for Basic Life Principles. These have really grabbed everyone's attention Cult documentaries, I would put this in the cult documentary department. Uh, These cult documentaries really grab a lot of people's attention, mainly, I would say, because they are 
a branch of true crime in a way where they uh, deal with all the dirty laundry, the secrets. What do you know? The secrets, the dirty laundry, the allegations, the abuse, the sexual abuse, the, the everything. And I think it's part of the reason why these documentaries are so popular. I think for me personally, why I gravitate towards um, this form of documentary is I don't really watch a lot of true crime because I don't want to know about serial killers. But this stuff is easier for me to sit with. It's very uncomfortable, but it's easier to sit with. But it's also particularly in this situation dealing with Hillsong Church, dealing in both situations with Christian churches and organizations, this really shines a very, this is what your takeaway, a very necessary light on where church abuse is taking place, where ministry abuse is taking place, and we need to do something about it. And I've been wrestling with, well, how do we do something about it? Like, it's going to take all of us, every single Christian on the planet, to stop listening to Hillsong's music in order to even make a drop in the bucket of, you know, making them feel the budget issues. But I think for us personally, as people in ministry who are involved in ministries, let these documentaries in a small way, I think this is one of many ways you can take these documentaries, be a challenge to you to set up safeguards in leadership. And I'm not talking about the Billy Graham rule of, you know, never be alone with another woman, but to surround yourself with genuine people who will not turn into yes men and yes women who will just cave for whatever you want, but put in there, as the Bible talks about, actual faithful people in leadership around you who will call you out and be humble enough to take those to take those corrections and exhortations. I think that has to be one of possibly many ways that we can take these documentaries and actually do something about them because it's, it's crazy. And every time, every time when it comes to ministry abuse, it seems like it comes back to the fact that the person in leadership has a cult of personality and no one around them to, they are the, they are the head, which is one of the main signs of a cult They are the head and no one else is there really to, you know, like call them out on things. Let that be one of our motivations for continuing on in ministry to be humble and to safeguard our environment with faithful people who are going to do what is best for the ministry and not for the ministry's reputation. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for dropping in. Uh, If you haven't already, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
go down into the description of this episode to find links to the My Seminary Life shop and website. There's a sale going on right now at the shop if you need some summertime gear. Follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at My Seminary Life Pod. And if you ever have a question for me, you can send it over to email seminarylife at gmail.com. Com. My Seminary Life is a part of the Anazal Ministries podcast network. AMP is a collection of shows devoted to asking the bigger questions in Christianity and wrestling with them. Hope to see, hear you all. Hear you all? You're hearing me. Hope to see you all next week on the show when we dive into a little bit of a history lesson. We're moving forward just a little bit. Bonhoeffer is now teaching in, at a seminary in Germany, and this is his uh, history and development of systematic theology in the 20th century. Yeah. And this is one of those things that I've had to read out loud in order for me to understand myself. So <laughs> get ready, folks. Thanks for listening again. This is Brandon signing off, reminding you as always that theology is for everyone. So keep on studying.